Welcome back to the Rifles Only Accuracy Podcast, your podcast for all things centerfire and rimfire. Our guiding principle, as always, is to make better shooters. I'm David Thomas, and as always, I'm here with uh, Jacob Bynum. What's going on, Jacob? Oh, man, just in enjoying the uh, fact that we got some rain down here. We needed it. Yeah, we got quite a bit of it. Yeah, I think Kingsville ended up getting 13 inches in some places. Mm-hmm. I saw some pictures that uh, it was it was pretty bad. You know, a lot of a lot of places flooded and everything else. But the water's receding out really quick. I mean, it had been so long since we got any significant rain, and we really needed it. So thank God. Cows are going to be happy. Oh. <coughs> great. That's great. Just coughing right out the gate. <coughs> Sorry. Got the Rona. Uh, I hope. Finally. <laughs> Maybe I can get some time off work with it. Anyway, uh, yeah, we got a ton of rain down where I work at in the valley. My feet have been wet for a week, yep. and it's getting a little old now. All right, so it's been about a week or so. We got a lot of stuff to talk about. Before I forget, I'm going to get into some stuff. We had that uh, Voodoo Rimfire Series State Championship a couple weeks ago, and we hadn't really had a chance to get into it. I just want to say thanks to a couple of sponsors that we haven't talked about yet. Uh, one is Grind Ops Coffee. They brought down... I want to say three or four different packages. Yeah, for that yeah they brought a bunch of coffee. And it's a uh, it's a current uh, law enforcement owned uh, deal, uh, coffee. So it's a big time 2A. He shoots a lot of matches. 2A, go on to support him. It's called Grind Ops Coffee. And you can find him on Instagram. I know. I don't know about Facebook, but definitely on Instagram. The other thing I want to talk about is uh, Eric Cortina. I think most people are familiar with his name. He's pretty big in the F-Class world. And he makes some tuners and a few other things. Uh, he sent a couple tuners down, if that's your thing. We'll talk about tuners another day, but that gets into some heated debate with some people. Uh, but yeah, Eric Cortina, I think it's ericcortina.com. I own quite a few of them. I like them. I think they're they're good for certain things. And we'll talk about, again, we'll talk about another day, but he makes uh, some breaks. He makes some tuners. He does some reloading classes, does all kind of stuff. So check out ericcortina.com. Hey, who's the guy who made that, uh, who made the trophies? Those things were monsters. That was Chris Cadena. Yep. Casey advertising out of uh, the Valley. He made the, he told me a couple matches before he's like, dude, I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to go overboard for these trophies. And I, like, and I was like, yeah, sure. Whatever. I don't care. He well, he showed up with trophies that weighed, I think 38 pounds a piece. Yeah, yeah, piece. <laughs> it was, yep. uh, thankfully nobody from out of town had to fly back. We we're going to have to figure that one out. But no, these things were monsters. Yep. He also just did for the last match we had down in Edinburgh. He did some laser engraving on some wild horse distillery bottles. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that. That came out really good for the, yeah, trophies. that, that worked out real well. And if, if, uh, you guys have been living under a rock, uh, that is also a bottle product yep yep wild horse rum uh, three different products available now so yeah it's it's good stuff available in texas at all your total wines and several different mom and pop shops i think we're getting ready to go into a another big uh, chain of restaurants in central texas area uh so yeah it's it's looking good there awesome uh and then uh i think so you're i believe you say so you're gonna be in colorado for most of june correct correct so we're gonna be apart we're still gonna be doing podcasts i think you're gonna you got this uh Give us a quick rundown on the Battle of Coyote. Yeah, Battle of Coyote is coming up. Um, what that is, is it is a miniature assassin's way. I mean, there is there is marksmanship, but marksmanship is not the focus. It's a field craft course. So you're going to be doing uh, range estimation, target detection, uh, Kim's games, and land nav. And so uh, that one's coming up in, in June. Uh, the other thing that we got going is we we scheduled our first 22 rimfire up there, and it filled 
and then we scheduled another one and it filled. So we're just scheduling two more now at the same location. Uh, I'm not sure if they're up on the website yet. If not, they will be uh, by Monday or Tuesday or next week, but they may already be up. I'm not sure. But um, we're going to do two more of those. And then additionally, we have a field craft course up there as well. So if it's uh, if you're not ready to comp to compete in Battle of Coyote because maybe your land nav skills are a little bit bad or range estimation skills, you know, you can come and take a course on how to do that. Now, all this stuff is non-electronic. So it's map and compass protractor. Um, you know, again, uh, ranging targets with, uh, you know, with your mill dots or ranging them with the maps. Um, and then what people don't think uh, they hear about Assassin's Way and it's like, oh, they, they've made it out to be this, you know, really, really like arduous thing. No, it's not. Uh, just go and exhibit the skills that you know how to shoot those skills. You know how to perform those skills and those tasks. It's not going to be hard. It's going to be fun, but it's going to show that the weakness and maybe the other side of the shooting. You know, if you're, if you're into hunting and going out on public land and, and, you know, need to get out there and say, okay, well, yeah, I believe me. I love my GPS. I have like four of them. Um, but still being able to, to navigate by, by map and compass is always a really good skill set to have. Uh, so there's another class going on up there for that as well. All right. So, uh, we, the reason I was going into that is hopefully at the end of that, we're going to have, uh, several competitors hopefully do a podcast. Yeah, Let you know our so. thoughts on I it. I hope so. Yeah. And in the meantime, we're going to figure out some other stuff and do our regular podcast. But uh, since we're going to have some time apart, I'm going to uh, attempt anyway. Uh, I'm sure it'll work out at some point. I want to try to get some guests on here. I know some guys over from Zero Compromise Optic are already committed. Um, I'm going to look at getting some other match directors. So if you guys have any ideas for uh, guests that you'd like to hear, send them over to it's ROAP. ROAP at riflesonly.com. That's our email for, for the podcast. Send us uh, suggestions on who you'd like to hear from and also questions. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if we get whoever you want on here and we can get them on here, give us some questions you'd like to hear and uh, we'll, we'll make it happen. Yeah, for sure. All right. So I think... I think that covers all the housekeeping. Okay. Uh, I know we've had a flood of, uh, you know, no pun intended with all the rain down here, but a flood of emails. Uh, we have, we have. Uh, and I, first off, before I even get into them, I just want to thank those guys that, that email and, and send us topics or questions or anything like that. And, uh, we have a really good list of diverse topics today. So some different things that I want to talk about. Normally we'll come in and we'll have a, uh, We'll have a little bit of a, a section on training and there's one that I wanted to address that it was a question about it. It was like some personal issues that this guy was having uh, with, you know, the the way that the reticle moved whenever he was shooting. And uh, he, he had kind of uh, brought it down to trigger control uh, or a portion of trigger control. And what that is, you know, the definition of trigger control is manipulation of the trigger without disturbing the lay of the sights. Really good definition for that. Um, and we talk about, you know, uh, 90 degree trigger finger and being able to come straight back on the trigger. Um, but there's also some other things. It, it gets a little bit deeper than that. And so whenever you're coming back on the trigger, whether you have that, you know, first stage or second stage, um, if you have a, a two stage and you, you take up the slack on the first one, I always say I, I shoot two stage triggers. So I say that once I take up the first stage, I'm in the shot when I'm right before the wall and it breaks, that's when I perfect the shot. In other words, get to the bottom of my breathing cycle, making sure that my sight pictures and sight alignment and the reticle is on the target where I need to hit, or it's on part of it to where I'm holding for wind. But what we don't want to do at that time is just run through the trigger super fast at that point. Um, you should dry fire enough to where you know exactly when the trigger is going to break and you don't have to crush that trigger or act like you're going to bend it. It was kind of, um, it was kind of, uh, 
topical because I, I was doing a uh, one and two combination course a couple of weeks ago. And I had this one shooter in there, man, fantastic shooter, fantastic guy, law enforcement. Um, and that's what he was doing. I mean, he was shooting uh, an accuracy international AE. So he had good equipment. And what he was doing was he would get to that second stage and then it was time for him to shoot. It was like he would come through that trigger. I mean, just blazingly fast with a lot of torque on his finger. I mean, you could actually see, you know, the blood exiting the tip of his finger. Wow. And so um, while, you know, it wasn't causing him and it shouldn't because he had 90 degrees on it, uh, just like we've been teaching here at Rifles Only for decades and he had 90 degrees on it so his shots were off not bad not bad he was still getting really good hits especially on the steel but whenever it goes time to get precise which is exactly what his job is going to be um i guess i'm i, I don't want to say that you want to baby the trigger because that would lead to somebody just like tapping it that's not it come through follow through but don't feel like you have to break that trigger or put too much pressure on it. I mean, it's going to go off and we know our triggers now are, are uh, at weights that are not real heavy. It's not like the old days where we have to, you know, stick a dowel rod in there and, and pry the trigger <laughs> backwards. Uh, but it, again, it, try it, you know, with, with different pressures on your dry fire and see what that reticle does. Then try it live fire and see that, you know, I always, I always want to say that don't let somebody tell you, okay, you do it this way, and this is the way you're going to do it, and you're going to do it like that forever. No, there's nine different ways to skin a cat. What you have to understand is that there are some things that are inviolate, and those are the fundamentals of marksmanship. How you apply those fundamentals, provided you're applying those fundamentals, is not wrong. I mean, we get it a lot whenever we start working on barricades. You know, hey, is it okay if I put my foot here? I don't care where you put your foot. You're shaped different than me. I don't know where you can put your foot. You get it to where, you know, you've got a good stable position and you can support the fundamentals of marksmanship and you're setting yourself up for success. And so I just wanted to touch on that one really quick. The the uh, the email that he had sent was was pretty descriptive and everything else. And I he, he probably was able to answer his own question. He's asked, you know, do I feel mm -hmm. like I'm I'm crushing that trigger? And whenever, you know, he was explaining to me in the email what he was seeing in his reticle and everything else, it it really did appear that he answered his own question. So I mean, there's a lot of smart people out there that are listening to this. But yeah, it, it is. And you're just gonna have to fight that, you know, go out and you know, try it going different ways. You know, try coming through a little bit, a little bit lighter, maybe not any slower, but a a little bit lighter and as long as you're holding that thing to the rear so the bullet can get out of the bore then you're going to be in pretty good shape you got any thoughts on that one dave uh no just, uh, the only thing i think i can add is uh remember you don't have to i know there's some of these uh, dry fire training systems and if you want one of those in your house that's cool get them they seem to be pretty cool but also realize you don't have to have that you don't have to have be out there on the range uh to train that how to what he's talking about how much pressure lighter or harder whatever works for you you can sit there in your living room watching tv you know again make sure everything's safe and follow the safety you know our core safety rules but you can you can practice your your trigger control there right there in the living room. i do it all the time I, i'll be watching tv and i'm i'm breaking the trigger uh, do you agree with with that yeah, just make sure it's empty because TV, yeah. TVs don't survive around law enforcement very much. <laughs> yeah, they, they TVs and mirrors. Yeah, they, it doesn't work out so well. <laughs> but again, make sure you're safe. But you can practice. Uh, I mean, you can get hundreds of thousands of, uh, of proper trigger presses that way, at least in my experience, and, yeah. and it helps a lot. And make sure you're doing it right. You know yes. what I mean? Don't just sit there and go through the clicks. You know, make sure you're doing it right. It's like I always said, whenever I go for a, a dry fire session, you know, I'll wear my gun belt. I'll put on my hearing protection. I want to treat it exactly as if it's a live round yeah. so that I can actually get really good training whenever I'm dry firing. And you know, the, you know, you, you can't, you can't really argue with the likes of, you know, Robbie Latham and, and David Tubb, you know, they're, 
they are huge advocates of dry fire and, and look where they are, you know, so. And the only other thing I'll add is one of the most over, don't get me wrong, you, you may not have a choice depending on who you work for or what rifle you buy. But if you have a choice, I think one of the most overlooked uh, aspects of uh, buying a stock or a chassis, I, the first thing I look at is uh, my trigger finger. Mm -hmm. uh, I have shorter fingers. Mm -hmm. So it's very, uh, I don't like if I, I know how I know how to manipulate it and get up on my fingertips if I need to, but I don't like to if I don't have to. Right. But I am. I want to get that 90 degree and there's a, there's just tons of uh, chassis options and grip options out there. And a lot of people are starting to figure out getting that grip closer to where it's easier to get that 90 degree. And I think that a lot of people overlook it. I see one of the things I see at a lot of matches is they're shooting uh, very popular chassis and all that, but they, they got them because they felt good just grabbing them. Right. Maybe not with the trigger. They just grabbed it. So this feels good, but then they've right. got a jointed trigger, maybe not a 90 degree that they could be doing better. So I think it's, uh, the most overlooked portion of buying a, a stocker chassis is that 90 degree trigger, in my opinion. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of those, you know, you can change the grips on yeah. them now and, you know, you can change the, uh, you know, the, the position of those grips. I mean, I know that the, the Magpul is able to do that. Yes. And, uh, you know, Magpul has been really good to us. They get on theirs, you know, you can move that around and get it to fit, you know, your hand just about any way you can. So you can get that, that 90 degrees. I gotta, I'm not, I'm not real. I don't really worry too much about, um, you know, when, whenever I have to go up on my fingertips, because I have so many different rifles that come through here, and so right. I have to shoot them, and so I need to be able to shoot them all. Uh, but, you know, it's just that 90-degree trigger finger and coming straight back, that's where it's at, you know. <laughs> I mean, you're, we're just going to hold the rifle into our shoulder anyway. It's not like it's a grip, you know. So we'll work on that one. All right. That's we're, all I got for it. All right, cool. I had another one, a really, really good friend of mine from up in the Pacific Northwest. He gave me a phone call on this one, mm -hmm. and uh, he says, hey, and I really like this guy. He's he's super funny and super cool to be around. I like his wife, uh, really cool people people he says hey let's talk about shooting in heavy mirage and i thought man i got good ones on that <laughs> um heavy mirage shooting okay going going far um first off first first rattle out of the box just because your scope goes to 35 power don't run it on 35 power so people always say okay well i'm shooting far so i need a lot of power so i can see so yeah but all of those mirage conditions <clears throat> if it says 37 on that power ring what you're doing is you're magnifying that mirage by 37 times. And if you think it's, if you think it's bad, you know, just by the naked eye, uh, get behind the scope, crank that power up to 25 or 35 or whatever. And it's great that those scopes have that power. I mean, it's awesome, but using it to shoot far in heavy mirage conditions is I mean, if you just back down the power, the first thing, I mean, your, your whole, your eyeball is just going to say, ah, that's better. <laughs> and believe me, it happens. Um, the other thing is, what does the mirage do to your image on what you're seeing down there? Well, the mirage changes it. So if I have a mirage that's coming from right to left, that image, might, if you when you're looking at it, you're going to see it kind of bounce in mm -hmm. the lateral format. Um, so one of the old ways that you know we used to we used to talk about all the time, and it still it still has a lot of validity. What you want to do is you want to look at the upside, the upwind side of the edge of your target. Like the downwind side, you're going to see that when it, when it bounces, it's going to be very irregular on it's how like far, a flutter. Yeah. yeah, on how far it bounces over. But whenever it bounces back, you know, like wind coming from the right, whenever that image bounces back to the right, it's going to be real consistent on where it bounces back to. That'll give you a better indication of where the target actually is because uh, heavy mirage. I mean, he he used the word specifically heavy mirage, and so if that's the case, it. That is, that's just reflect refraction of light. So that target is not exactly where you think it is. But again, every time you get a chance to go and shoot in that heavy mirage, do it. And 
if you get a chance to do it and you can just sit there and watch it, you know, find yourself, get yourself something comfortable, put that rifle up on a, on a tripod and get yourself a chair and get yourself comfortable and just watch targets in the mirage. Just watch how they act, you know, whenever the, the mirage is really heavy. So we're, we're talking about it going, you know, straight across vertically. How does it look like it's kind of going up and to the right or up and to the left, depending on the direction of the wind, but take some time to actually watch the mirage and see what, I mean, just watching it for a while. Then, of course, obviously, go and shoot it. See what the bullet says. I mean, I think I said before, believe the bullet. You know, I should put it on a T-shirt or something. <laughs> but uh, at any rate, go over there and shoot that and shoot in that mirage so that you can see what happens. You know, paint those targets white, you know, or, or, or paper is even better. If you can go out there and go back and forth and take a look at, see what happens to the bullet holes. And it's, it's um, the, the problem is, is that, as humans, whenever we get behind that scope rifle, what we want to do is we want to shoot. I mean, we want to shoot right now. And so the time that we spend actually watching it and watching the mirage and seeing how it makes the target dance, you know, those are the things that you, you should probably do and spend some time. You don't even have to load your gun. You can go out there and just watch what that mirage does and start to see where that target flutters to. Um, the other thing on shooting in heavy mirage, and this is, this is probably going to, this, a lot of people are going to disagree with me on this, but, uh, and that's okay. But, uh, I spent a lot of time on the tower, you know, watching mirage and down here, our, our, our prevailing winds are out of the Southeast. And so, it makes it pretty difficult to shoot because we have that wind that's coming between 5.30 and 6.30. It's never directly at 6 and it's switching from minute to minute. And so the big thing before was whenever you see the mirage boil, hold center and pull the trigger. I know you all have heard that. Uh, okay, you can do that because this is America and you can do what you want. But what I have found after just sitting out there and watching the mirage is whenever I get that wind that's coming directly from my six o'clock or directly from my 12 o'clock watching the mirage, the target becomes clear, crystal clear. It's as if that, if that mirage is coming right in a straight line with your eyeball and the bore of your gun, it's like you can see right through it. And I've seen that happen uh, literally hundreds of times on the tower out here at rifles only and in other places too. Uh, but a lot on rifles only because I spent a lot of time looking at the wind up there. But you know, it gets, if, if you have that boil, still understand that there it still is some lateral movement to that wind, even though it looks like it's boiling and you can swear to God that it's boiling. So it's got to be going straight up. If, if that wind is coming straight behind you or straight in front of you, I promise you, if you're looking straight into where that mirage is coming from, the target is going to be clear. Go check it out. You'll see what I'm talking about. Dave. Yeah. Uh, shooting in heavy mirage and down here inside Texas, we do it a lot. I mean, it doesn't take shoot. much. If you shoot, you shoot a mirage mm -hmm. basically down here. Um, I, I've read, thousands of things online i've talked to thousands you know not thousands but probably hundreds of people about it there's no real set you know it's not like it just as easy okay i'm gonna dial down three tenths or whatever it's it's a lot of trial and error it's a lot of um i don't want to call it voodoo but it's uh like you said you got to get out there and you got to watch it because it, it's it, it's light refraction there's not a really i mean there's i'm sure there's ways to measure it but there's no way we're going to measure it right uh and again, we do it a lot. The one thing I will also say to be careful of is not just while you're at a match or, or doping a gun or whatever, is be careful, especially if you're in somewhere that's uh, very, you get a lot of mirage real fast or it's in the middle of the day. <clears throat> I've seen guys, they'll zero their gun in the mirage. Mm -hmm. And then the next day they're at a match and first thing in the morning, no mirage and they're just all over the place. Mm -hmm. So be careful with that. Uh, the closer you are to the ground, 
the more mirage you're going to get. The more you're going to get. So uh, while I, I typically tell people if you can shoot prone and get your zero, I will personally, if, if it's already mirage down there, I get up on the bench, stand behind the bench and, yeah. and work on it. Yeah, so, it just that little, that couple of feet actually helps a lot, you know, especially with that hundred yard zeroing stuff for center fire. And that's, uh, you know, that's one of the things too. Um, keep in mind, you know, if you're going through a pretty heavy string, you're going to get mirage off your barrel. Mm -hmm. And so if you're, if you get mirage off your barrel, you know, that's, that's going to happen as well. Uh, if you're shooting suppressed, um, that'll be another thing. You're going to get mirage off the suppressor, but you know, you can go to the rifles only pro shop and we have devices to solve <laughs> that, uh, shameless plug for rifles only retail. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's suppressor covers out there. Um, one of the things, the first accuracy international that I bought back in 1997, um, had a muzzle brake, uh, and then a little, uh, like bolt screwed into the top of the muzzle brake. And that was for a mirage band. You know? Oh, okay. So yeah, yeah. What it does is it just moves the, moves the mirage out to the side from your field of view. So you don't get that. And you'll see that a lot of F class guys have that, but you know, the old super magnums in the AW line, they had those. And so those were, you know, they, there was a reason for it. You know, you get really heavy, heavy calibers like that. They get hot. And uh, in order to keep the barrels weren't nothing wrong with the barrels. They were just shedding heat just exactly like they're supposed to do. And sometimes that'll get in your way. But um, yeah, the, the shooting and heavy mirage like that. I mean, it's um, it's one of those things, you know, the heavy mirage, we, we typically associate that, that down here with heavy winds, you know, because we end up getting that those really, you know, hot days and it's, you know, heating up and we don't we don't have canyons to shoot across to kind of, you know, defeat that mirage. Um, and the mirage is one of those things, too. Um, a lot of people will tell you, OK, well you know, we can, we can, uh, you know, kind of get our wind speed, you know, and, and how much correction on there. Well, uh, yeah, maybe I don't really, I don't really subscribe to that. What it tells me is it tells me that the wind is blowing and it tells me which direction it's blowing from Uh famous Frank Galley quote down here. The mirage tells me that the wind is blowing. Yep. Frank, you're absolutely right. <laughs> so it's kind of, kind of one of those things. Yeah. We get enough wind down here and I'm sure the East coast, it's probably a little bit different, but our winds are, cause I think, Somebody's going to catch me if I'm saying this wrong, but I think it's around the 12 to 14 mile an hour wind. The mirage is after that, it's it's flat. And yeah, it's, it's not flat. much you can do about it. And we our our winds are usually up there. Yeah. So I think it's a little less than that. It, yeah, it goes flat. It goes flat. Yeah. And so we're usually looking at we're we're either usually looking at slightly moving mirage or flat mirage. Yeah, nothing in between. Yeah, so it's a little bit hard to get that experience here but i i absolutely use it for wind direction oh yeah for wind direction absolutely and 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 it's like you know the question was you know how you know what are you doing there just just understand it's like if you walk up to your fish tank and you look at it from the side and you stick a pencil in it and say how'd that pencil bend you know that's what's going on you know you, you got this moisture in the air and it's uh it's causing what you see to be a little bit different that believe me that target it's still it's not out there dancing around it just looks like it's dancing around but and, watch that upwind side to see you know that'll give you a better indication of where the target actually is uh the other thing i'll point out and then this isn't to knock on anybody for their their optic choices but uh, in my experience because uh, a lot of times you don't notice that you're in the middle of the day no mirage it's not dark outside and all the glass from a hundred dollars to four thousand dollars they all look great uh, low light, obviously you see a difference. And then mirage is where I see a difference. You know, that, that quality glass is, uh, you know, you pick up one of these, uh, Leopold Mark five, stuff mm -hmm. like that. You're going to see a difference yep. in your, in the mirage, the coatings and all that. You're still going to back the power down, yep. but, um, you know, uh, you start getting to a certain tier of glass or coatings and it, it does make it a little bit easier. Right. Right. And that's another thing that you have to, you know, that you have to consider, you know, there's that technique of, you know, bringing your focus knob into a shorter range uh -huh. so you can see what the mirage is doing between here and the target. And again, okay, that's fine. You can go ahead and do that. But what happens with the wind is 
the wind that's closest to the ground is the least. That's the least amount of wind. So if I'm out there and I'm shooting, you know, I'm going, you know, 1500 yards, my max ord is way above my line of sight. And as you go up, the wind gets higher because the wind is not being affected by the friction from terrain features or vegetation. It's like you go out to the tower uh, here at Rifles Only and you, you hold up your Kestrel, got 10 mile an hour wind. And so then you walk up to the first deck and whenever you walk up to the first deck, uh, your feet are at 12. And then if you hold up your Kestrel, it's gonna be at about 16. If it read 10 on the ground, you can expect it to read 13 or 14 whenever you're on that first deck. Go up to the next deck and you're going to see another increase in the wind just because you're getting further away from the friction that's caused by terrain features and vegetation. Well, keep in mind that whenever you shoot, like let's say, let's say you're going to, you're going to shoot a, a 308 to a thousand yards. Well, whatever you're looking through, max order that bullet is going to be another 16 feet up before it gets there. And so the winds are a little bit higher up there. And the, this is why, you know, the, these are the little things, the rules of thumb that you need to know to help you become a better wind reader. And there's people out there that are much, much better at wind reading than I am. And uh, maybe I can get one of those guys on one of these days to, to talk about it. I hope. <laughs> anyway, I think we killed that one. Uh, yeah, I think we, we got that one pretty good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. Uh, Go ahead. I was going to, yeah, I yeah. was just checking to see uh, yeah. if you've heard anything. Uh, there's a couple podcasts he's on. Emil Praslik, if you're not familiar with him, works over there with Berger. He was the coach for the U.S. Army marksmanship team. Uh, if there's a if there's stuff about wind, he probably knows it. Wind and mirage and stuff like that. If he doesn't know it, it's not worth knowing. Right. So uh, maybe we'll reach out and see if we can talk to him. But there's a few podcasts yeah, I'm sure out there. We can. I was uh, two years ago. I was at Arena Training Facility because right. yeah, we yeah. did the Precision Precision Rifle Expo out there. And so Emil had his tent set up on one side of the big shooting berm, and I was set up on the other. Mm -hmm. And I tell you, whenever he was going to be putting on a talk. Uh, that tent was absolutely flooded and for good reason that guy that guy knows it no yeah like you said if, if he's not talking about it it doesn't it, matter it doesn't matter exactly right exactly and, right. and we'll reach out to him but it, there's i think he was on frank's a few different times mm -hmm. i think he's been on um i i don't remember which one other one that's out there that uh he's just a wealth of knowledge yeah he's done a lot if you can hear a podcast with a meal Get on it. He'll talk about wind gradients. And I mean, yeah, I, he's forgotten more than I'll ever know about it. Yeah, for sure. All right. Uh, MPH value, mile per hour values for uh, your guns. Mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty well, you know, it's pretty well out there on how you figure that and everything else. But the big question is, if you have an MOA reticle, does it cause you an issue? Um, it causes you an issue for getting MPH values for your gun and being able to have a reference point inside your scope. Does it make you miss? No, it doesn't. Um, there's there's a, a, you know plenty of formulas out there in MOA that you know will give you with constants and everything else that can give you your starting points on your win. And again, understand that those MPH values they're just starting points. All of them are. Um, it's a quick reference. Yeah, it's a, it's a quick reference. And, and it's not it's an a, exact. It's a quick reference so that you can get the bullet into the same zip code, then see what the bullet says and correct accordingly. Uh, very very you know, cool stuff, you know, MPH values, you know, for, for your different guns, you know, absolutely. It's brilliant. But again, it's, it's one of those things that again, we have, you know, we have other issues with wind, you know, it depends on how far you're shooting. You know, if you got to go up really, really high, you know, your bullet's going to spend some time in an area that it's max or, you know, having a little bit more wind. Now, again, your bullet's going through it pretty quick. Um, uh, again, one of the things that I, I can bring up really quick and it has to do, it has to do with uh, wind and mirage 
um, I was doing a class in Oregon and first shot, this thing was about uh, 25 degree, 20 degree down angle, something like that, 700 yards. Whenever you look through the scope, man, you saw that mirage just flying. I mean, it was absolutely flying right to left. You, you couldn't help yourself. You had to hold into it. And whenever you mm-hmm. held into it, your bullet went right where you held. <laughs> and so if you wanted to hit the target, hold dead on, even though that mirage was going, well, what was going on was because we were in the mountains, the flight of that bullet was protected until about the last 50 yards. And, that's, and at that point, it's not, at that, not that point, much. You know, it's not that much, you know, so the bullet was able to make it through there without being, you know, thrown off of its course. And so, but it was one of those things when you look at it and that's why, you know, Mirage is such an interesting thing. Didn't mean to jump back. Yeah, uh, when, when you brought it up, just to, we'll talk about it, maybe get some other guys and we'll really get dig in the wind. But um, obviously the further out you go, it changes, but uh, it's kind of counterintuitive. Uh the way I see a lot of guys talking about at these matches and all, they go, hey, did you see the dirt and the dust at the target? Well, that's fine for a direction, but remember, the wind at the shooter and then the wind part, you know, halfway there is going to have a much larger value than your last uh, your last third there. Well, the one that's going to matter the most is the one at the shooter. Obviously, yes, because obviously. Because, you know, once the bullet gets blown off, it's dumb, so it's not going to come back, you know, so that you, that's... And fortunately, that's the place where you, I mean, you're going to get your best success judging your win right at the shooter. Yeah, and I just just put it out there, little, little tips here and there. Just uh, yep. don't get too focused on the, the wind at the target. It matters, but not as much as you think. Yep. Uh, Hornady Ballistic Calculator. Oh, Fordoff. Yeah, Fordoff. Uh, what's the question here? Uh, thoughts on it. Uh, I mean, I don't want to downplay anything, but it's a uh, there's a lot of, it's a ballistic calculator. Mm-hmm. Um, I like, they all are pretty good at what they do um they they don't all give you the exact same solution but they get pretty close uh the way i look at it it's a, it's made by hornady and uh it's probably going to be one of your better ones if you shoot hornady bullets uh just like I, I i use applied ballistics i use a lot of burger bullets and and those guys are very closely related so it works really well for them uh i it, there's a lot of people that love ford off i haven't used it extensively i probably need to pick it up and get a little bit more familiar with it uh, but yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. I, a lot of people have success with it. I think Frank uses it a lot over there. Um, you have many thoughts on it or? Well, it, it's kind of like this whenever we go out and it's, it's mover day at rifles only. So first day on, you know, shooting movers mm-hmm. over 500 yards, we talk to the shooters about the difference between ambushing and tracking. And I always tell them you might be shooting right next to a guy. You might be ambushing, shooting right next to a guy who's tracking and both of y'all have the hit rate. So how can you say that one is better than the other? You know, and whenever I think about ballistic calculators, I mean, my favorite is geoballistics. Mm-hmm. I, I love ballistic arc. I mean, I, I like it, but my brain works in it easy. You right. know what I mean? It works in it easy. You know, before that was, you know, Horace with the three pages, you know, my mm-hmm. brain works in it easy. Um, and the person right next to me may like a, a Ford off or, or any of the other ones that are out there. And like you say, the answers that they're giving are so close that it, it becomes, okay, if it if it gave me the wrong elevation at 900 yards, was it because the ballistic calculator gave me the wrong information or was it because I had that extra cup of coffee that morning? You know what I mean? Odds are. I yeah. mean, odds are. I mean, so the, there's ballistic calculators out there. I, I love Strelock. I mean, I, I these are these are calculators that have been out there for a long time. I prefer the geoballistics because it works with my brain better. Someone else says, okay, they, they like Ford off better. It, that's fine. It works for their brain better. You know, the inputs, everything else. Um, I like, and you and I, yeah, we, talked, we, about we this. talked about this before and, and we, 
you like uh, applied ballistics. There's nothing wrong with no. applied ballistics, but applied ballistics is is in the Kestrel. You, know? you, you can get a phone app, but I don't want to talk about it. It's not the greatest, but I prefer. Um, I've had experience my phone. My hands get sweaty or wet. It's harder to do the touchscreen. Sometimes you get too hot down here in Texas. It'll go into standby mode or something like that. I prefer my Kestrel, yep. but you... Yeah, you prefer. I, I prefer working off my phone because right. that means I don't have to carry a Kestrel, you know, and it's like uh, I, I know that the Kestrel's giving me real time wins. But normally, like if I'm at if I'm in Colorado, you know, I can pull up the I can pull up geoballistics and I can get weather and wind from the closest airport because it'll it'll load into there. Mm-hmm. And so what I have found is, you know, getting that my, my density altitudes and everything else for work. I, I don't really need it at my exact location. You know what I mean? Now, that's not to say that that's going to work for everybody, you know, because if you got, you know, you got people that are, you know, in other parts of the country and stuff like that, well, absolutely go Kestrel, you know what I mean? Because there you got your own weather station right there on you. Um, and, and it works. Yeah. And I, I, I don't want to say I never use it for wind. I I don't use it a lot for wind because I have found it. it, Now, if the wind's really switchy or it's just confusing me or it's really high wind, I'll use it to get an idea. But I've always found because I'm measuring it here and, you know, not up there at Max Award and stuff like that. My wind solution is very rarely the same as my Kestrel because it's, it's different. So I don't, so don't get caught up in that. For sure. Uh, But, but I also say uh, until you're confident in making that, then, you know, you kind of want to, you can use it as a crutch to start getting you in the ballpark. The other, the other one I want to point out on just ballistic calculators in general, and it, uh, it's not as much a misconception anymore. But there's the pin click. Give me yeah, a click. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, started, I was listening to you. Yeah, I was intently listening, so I <laughs> had my pin going. Uh, for you guys that like the pin, there it is. Yeah. So uh, remember, you don't. Uh, you're not matching the gun to the to the software. You're matching the software to the gun. That has to be done. Yes, you will have times where you get lucky and everything lines up really well, and a lot of times it can get you really close. But you got to put in the work. You got to true that thing up. Uh, there's a hundred different ways to do it. Uh, everybody's got their own different way of true in their software and how they do it with their chronograph or whatnot, or if they don't use a chronograph either way. But remember, you can't, it's not, don't, don't, uh, don't think that, uh, oh, it, it's good at 300 because most things are going to be pretty close at 300 and then you pay 5,000 for that hunt, 10,000 for that hunt, and then you take that shot at 800. You, you might want to true that gun up before you go do that. Yeah. I have a question for you. This yes. This is a, a podcast technicality. Um, can this be paused? It can. Let's pause it because I need to go to a little boys' room. All right. Hit the pause button and we'll hit the next topic. All right. All right. I think that. we're back. Uh, we might be on a separate track, but I'll just I'll I'll splice them together. All right. Very cool. Thanks for that. It was getting pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Next question. Twenty-two suppressors, good or bad? Um, hmm. Suppressors, center fire, rim fire are a gift from God. Now. <laughs> Having said that, um, I have had some guys that are running stages out here, uh, especially on stages that are pretty far away, and the suppressors are so effective on the rimfire that they can't hear when the shooter shoots. And so, say, did I hit that one? Uh, uh, you shot. Yeah, didn't even know he shot. <laughs> did yeah. you shoot? <laughs> so that's one of the things that it can be too quiet. I mean, I will, I will never argue for anything that, you know, I can't say that, okay, they're there's no way to be too quiet. You know, I, I just like, I like the suppressors. I really do. Especially on, on 22 handgun. I mean, the 22 handguns, they got a little bit of a snap to them, but with our longer barrel, uh, 22 rifles, 
you know, I, I like suppressors. Your thoughts? Uh, center fire, yeah, big center time. Fire, like, I mean, absolutely. I center mean, fire, that's the only way to go. The, the only reason I don't use them in matches is because not everybody has them. If everybody had them, I would use yeah. it all the time. Yeah. Uh, rim fire. And matches, I don't, I don't think they're needed again because mm-hmm. they're already quiet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it, it happens a lot. I've, I've been on glass before, and uh, I'm like, they're like, uh, where'd that one go? I'm like, uh, I didn't even know you shot. So <laughs> I mean, nowhere. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, is uh, one, it adds another, uh, uh, another piece in the the equation that mm-hmm. could loosen up, that could go wrong. So there's that when it's not really necessarily needed, and. You have to be careful with some of these rim fire. Uh, they, di- the carbon buildup is different. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, if you lift that rifle up vertically, mm-hmm. it all runs down into your chamber, into your barrel. It can cause some issues. So, personally, at a match, I think they can possibly cause uh, more issues than they're worth. Yeah, uh, I don't really see any- now. If you're uh, you got neighbors. Stuff yeah. like that, absolutely. Yeah, when you're shooting in your backyard in yeah. a heavily democratic neighborhood. Yeah, they're you. They they have their place. They do. I'm not sure if matches are really the place yeah. for them, though. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that. I mean, you talk about suppressors in general. You know, the whenever we first started out, we you know the different agencies that we work for. You know, there were, nobody was suppressed, and then uh, move in, and some people are suppressed. Young guys like the suppressors. Old guys don't like the suppressors. And then now when everybody comes through, every rifle is suppressed, you know, whenever we're working, you know, for, for agencies and things like that. And I really like it. Um, it's a little bit too little too late because my hearing's pretty well gone anyway, but I really like, you know, having, uh, suppressors during, you know, training. I think it's good. Um, I know, uh, and people, you know, we, we talk about the concussion, but every time you hear a concussion, it does something to you mm-hmm. and it, it makes you a little bit tired, just incrementally tired. And so I know that whenever, you know, I'm, I'm over here and I've got a class that's, you know, everybody is suppressed at the end of the day, I'm not near as tired. I think that there's something to do with that. Oh, it it definitely is. I've been out here with you. And uh, in my opinion, it's much easier to focus on a student and get there. I mean, you you can stay down there with them. You can get with them Uh, when you're down there with the break and the concussions hitting you. It's harder. I think. Yeah. And and the student's taking some of that concussion too. You know, they're not, not to the degree that someone standing next to them is, but you know, suppressor is pretty much the, you know, the ultimate muzzle break. And, um, you know, I, I like it. I, on my center fire, I, I run a Thunder Beast can and, you know, going back most of the time, you know, I get this question quite a bit, you know, what does a suppressor do to your accuracy? Well, it, what's the answer the always the answer? It depends. It depends. Yeah. So there was, um, a long time ago before the one tens came out, there was a Mark 11 motto was SR 25. And, um, that one had a suppressor on it that was a little bit strange. It connected in two places. And if you went and you looked in the book on it, it said that that gun without the suppressor was a one inch gun, but with the suppressor was an inch and a half gun. Now I never really saw one that was that bad. I mean, some of them that had been, you know, really, you know, torn up and not mm-hmm. taken care of, of course, but I, I don't know this as a scientific fact, but I think whenever you have a direct thread suppressor or something that, you know, comes in and has, you know, single point of contact, I think that extra weight on there kind of calms down the vibrations a little bit. And I've always seen guns get a little more accurate, you know, with the suppressor on them, especially the center fire side of the house. Yeah. And going into it, I mean, the science is above a lot of my education or knowledge, but uh, I mean, you know, talking about tuners and all that, I mean, you're, you're sitting at good or bad, you're putting a tuner on the end of your right. It's a weight. Yeah. It's a weight. It's a weight. That's what a tuner is. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I like, uh, it's hard to go. There's a lot of good stuff out there, but if you're talking about if you just want to be safe and want to know that it's going to shoot well on your your bolt gun or your precision rifle, Thunder Beast. I mean, they're just yeah, they're good. Yeah, they are. Uh, last question from mm-hmm. this person: 
how to select 22 ammo. Now, I know that you've covered this before. Mm -hmm. If you just give me a give me a quick cover on it again. Uh, one, uh, buy a Voodoo and then buy SK or Lapua ammo. <laughs> I mean, that's the that's the yeah. easiest way. I, yeah. I, just like I forgot to say it on that one, the, with the MOA and mile an hour, the easiest way, go get a mill scope. Yeah. I hate to say yeah. it, but uh, the easiest way is... Uh, or, or have a rifle that's uh, chambered specifically for certain type of ammo. That's going to sure. cut it down. Now, and, and what I'm talking about, I'm not talking about Benchrest. Uh, Benchrest 22 Rimfire, that is a whole other crazy, crazy realm. Um, and I'm not educated enough on it. That gets into just, uh, if you really want to know how to select ammo and all that, check that stuff out online. But for our purposes, uh, if you don't have your rifle chambered, uh, the other easiest way is to send it to Lapua or Ely test centers. I think they charge you like $50 if you don't buy any ammo. And if you do buy ammo, it's free and you just buy it from them, the lot that they test. So there's mm -hmm. that. That's the second easiest way I've seen. And then the other way is uh, you just got to buy a lot of ammo or buy boxes. And right now that's, you, you know, problematic. Pick, yeah. Being picky about lots right now is almost impossible. Yeah. Uh, but on normal situations, yeah, you, you, you pick up uh I would pick up a few different ones, your different brands. Uh, if you can get multiple lots from those brands, get it. If not, pick up just the brand. And if it tends to like that brand a little bit, then start narrowing down in lots within that. But it's going to be, uh, again, it's one of those, it depends. Uh, like I said, the easiest way is have a rifle uh, chambered for your given ammo. Like a Voodoo is uh, specifically chambered for Lapua uh, around the center X, but it'll you know work for most of their stuff. Or have another Smith uh, do it for you for a specific ammo that they know how to do it for. Make sure it's a rimfire Smith or somebody that really knows rimfire. Or send it off to the test center. Those are the two easiest ways. Yep. Very cool. Very cool. Next question. Spindrift and the 22. <laughs> I mean, it, it exists. Um, that one's tough. Because, I mean, we, we all know, regardless, we know Spindrift exists. We've all seen it. Or, or if we haven't, we know that it's there uh 22s it's very hard i you could go to an indoor range but most of them are gonna be 50 yards or so and and kind of test that out otherwise i would say i would almost need to go to a warehouse and really narrow it down because here's the issue with the 22 i'll give you an example so i shot a match and let me give a shout out to those guys i went up to uh uh, Navasota uh, CCC shooting. It's a uh, Texas precision matches, uh, Prentice wink and David lot. I believe I went to a match over there. It was an awesome match over the weekend. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you guys get a chance and you're near Navasota college station, go shoot a match there. Center fire and rim fire. They're awesome. They get like 80 shooters a month for both of these on a club mm -hmm. match. That's nuts. Yeah. So they do great things. So check them out. But I was at their match and, uh, the wind hold that I was using at two, three, 400 yards. Uh, I'm using about, anywhere from a mil to three mils, depending on what it was. And uh, a lot of that was just uh, based off a four mile an hour wind. Right. So almost no wind, like with a center fire, I wouldn't, who yeah, cares, right? Wouldn't I wouldn't have cared. The issue is with such little wind, uh, moving that, that bullet laterally, uh, it's going to eat up or uh, kind of get this, lost yeah, in the noise. It's going to get lost in there. It's just, uh, it it's there. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, mu it's so it's not. I don't want to say it's small, but it's it's much smaller in the wind. Yeah. So it, it it's it's almost not. I think it is small. It I is, think you can small. say it's small. It's small. I can think you could say that it might be one of those things that you can't even go for. I mean, uh, I I have seen spin drift whenever I'm shooting a mile, mm -hmm. um, and you know I've seen that. Um, I had a guy in class one time who his job was shooting the 16 inch naval guns, and he told me that 
The Spindrift Correction shooting a 2,500-pound projectile for 23 miles was 48 inches. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not going to argue with him because, one, he, he's in charge of a really big gun. Yeah, I did it. always say, you know, that uh, we think we're really cool with our rifles, <laughs> but until it requires a forklift to put in the magazine, you know, you really don't have a rifle. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I just, um, you know, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to really say that it's going to have an effect on a 22 because we're not shooting them. We're not shooting them far enough. Now, I could be completely wrong on that. And if I am, please uh, send me an email and tell me how wrong I am. But I haven't I haven't seen it too much. And the reason I haven't seen it is because we're always shooting in the wind. And I know it's I know that the wind is such just like David said, it, it, the wind is such a much bigger factor than the spin drift correction would be. Yeah, I mean, it, like I said, it's there, but I, I don't worry as much about it because I'm gonna make, I'm gonna make a wind call. Mm -hmm. uh, most and and also, you know, because of the, uh, the deal. Once you get further out there, and you know, these the rim fire is not going to shoot as tight or as well as a center fire, just based on physics and and whatnot. Mm -hmm. uh, so the targets are going to be a little bit. I don't want to say they're generous because sometimes they're not, but they're going to be there. So I'm going to make a wind call, and. Uh, you know, if you I want guess to, if that wind call has a little bit of spin drift in it and you don't know about it, who cares? That's what I'm saying. It yeah. doesn't really matter. I'm yeah. going to make the call. I'm going to see where the bullet went one yep. side of the it, it miss or one side of the target or center. And I'm going to keep going. Uh, if you want to start messing with your calculator and see that there's a 10th, cause I promise you it's not more than the 10th or three. And you want to add that into your wind call. I mean, yeah. by all means, give it a shot. Well, the biggest thing that what we don't want people to do is say, okay, um, my ballistic calculator said this, so that's what I'm going to shoot, and then just go and miss throughout the entire stage. No, don't do that. And it's like what you said earlier. You know, we're not. You know, we're we're adjusting our guns, and I always say that whenever I go out to the wind, you know, whether I'm shooting center fire or or rim fire, I'm going to make my best guess mm -hmm. on that wind. You know, and and after shooting for a while, my guess has I've been wrong so many times that my guess has become highly educated. Mm -hmm. And so I'm making an educated guess on what my wind is, and if my bullet tells me, my bullet corrects me and says, hey. Um, nice try, but here's the answer. Then I'm going to go with what the bullet says. Yeah. And, and if you want to check it, I mean, you know, go shoot uh, three or four matches and don't pay attention to anything on your spin drift and no. go shoot three or four matches and yeah. add in whatever your calculator says and see if yeah. it makes a difference for you. Yeah, it does. See what, see what you're going to do yeah. here. Next one, mental preparedness or mindset for firing consistent shots. Mm -hmm. um, no context on this one. Just that was it. Okay. So it wasn't about, you know, uh, match shooting uh, or it wasn't about hunting. It was just, you know, what sort of mental preparations. Okay. So that would require about more time than we have. Six months. Yeah. yeah. Six months to, to go. I will tell you this. Um, what I noticed in my hunting career, and I'll get to the competition career in a minute, but in my hunting career is that growing up, sometimes I would get a poor shot on an animal and I changed the way I hunted. And so the way I changed that was I would make sure I had a really good position and I would start a clock. And if I knew I was going to take this whitetail or a nail guy or whatever, I mean, if I had the opportunity, I would watch the animal for at least three minutes, maybe five. And what that did for me was it gave me the opportunity because, you know, I, you're hunting, you get buck fever, or I do anyway. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted that to go away. And since I started doing that, I haven't lost an animal since. Usually they drop right in their tracks. Um, whenever I was going, you know, competing all the time, what I would say is, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go here to the range because I'm having another day on the range. Mm -hmm. I know how to 
hit these targets because I've hit them before. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and I'm going to apply the fundamentals of marksmanship and I'm going to shoot these targets. Mm-hmm. It typically worked out. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it's just, okay, this is another day at the range that I'm out there. I'm shooting. Yes. There's other people here. It's a little bit noisier than normal. Uh, but you know, we're, I'm, I'm getting to hang out with really cool people mm-hmm. and I'm having great conversations. And then, you know, you go, you know, to, a go to a match and, you know, sometimes, you know, we would drive to New Mexico or Oklahoma, so really far from here. You know, mm-hmm. once you get, once you get out of Texas, you're pretty well halfway to anywhere you want to go in the U S uh, yeah, especially from here. But you know, it would be one of those things to where I'd say, okay, I'm just going to go up there and I'm going to just shoot to the best of my ability because I'm having another day on the range and I know how to do it. In other words, I wouldn't, I wouldn't get so worked up about the clock. Cause you think about it, you drive up there, you know, 12 hour drive at minimum and you're going to a match you're going to shoot you know uh ever how many stages really you're only shooting for about 10 minutes yeah, you're not shooting long at no all. you're not shooting at all so you, you're going up there for really 10 minutes of shooting and so whenever it came time for me to do that shooting i would just be singularly focused on you know what i had to do to get that shot uh, and what i had to do was follow the fundamentals um follow the fundamentals they have to become innate you know if i fall down in behind my rifle you know whether i'm you know off barricade or i'm prone or whatever I need to have practiced, you know, natural point of aim enough to where I don't have to think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, once you figured out that, you know that I'm not wasting time on the clock there. You know, I'm not, I'm not wasting, you know, precious time setting up because I knew how to set up. I had done it before. I had practiced it. And then just say, okay, I already know how to do this. You know what I mean? I'm just going to go do it one more time mm-hmm. because I had done it, you know, ever, you know, just it's how we practice, you know? Uh, so I didn't really, I didn't really let it affect me too much. Um, I have in whenever I went to that arena, I, I had uh, written up some notes that I could hand out to everybody that follow along. And so what's the what's the three words that scare a competition shooter more than anything? <laughs> and it's time starts now. And you got to get past that. You know, you got to get past that. I mean, the, the clock, the clock is the clock. You know, you can consider it your adversary, but kind of consider it your friend. What it's doing is it's making sure that you're able to apply all the fundamentals in different positions, maybe, maybe strong side, maybe support side, who knows, but to do it in a limited amount of time, which causes you to be efficient. So just understand that by the time you get there, you've practiced your efficiency already. You know, you practice your fundamentals. You kind of, I mean, everything's a barricade. Everything it a really barricade. is. Everything yeah. is a barricade, and everybody shot a barricade. I mean, we can we can change the the size, shape, color, uh, composition of everything, but pretty much consider you go up and it's something you haven't seen before. Well, yeah, you have seen it before, and it's not anything. So, oh, I've never I've never shot off this before. Well, yeah, you have. You know, you just don't think about it because it doesn't look the same. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just um, you know, I think the main thing is, and it's uh, I, I was even talking to a guy about bought some targets and. Um, he was saying that he really likes, you know, the rimfire because he just doesn't care mm-hmm. and he just has a great time. And that's the thing. I mean, understand no matter what, if this is in the match context, just understand all you're doing is shooting a rifle match. It's really in the grand scheme of things. It's really not that important. It's mm-hmm. way more important that you get to see your buddies that you don't get to see. Otherwise, you know, that's way more important than, you know, than where you place. Um, but again, everybody wants to place good and there is, there's a formula for that. <laughs> we talk about it all the time. Yeah. The mental mindset, again, it, it comes back. It's another one of those. It depends. Um, I, I will say one, uh, first thing, cause he, he touched on it. Remember I hear a lot of guys when I ask them about their practice and they go, ah, I, I use a uh, club matches or other stuff for practice. Remember you're only getting about 10, 15 minutes of shooting in, right? That's not really good practice. No, I, I, if you get 10 minutes, yeah. that's a lot. Yeah. That's so a lot of stages. remember, 
you, it, I'm not saying it's not practice, but mm-hmm. it's not a lot of practice. It's not, a lot. It's not great practice. No. So go out there with a mindset. The other thing is, is, uh, and I think he touched on it and I'll, I'll expand on it since it's just a rifle match, but, uh, no matter whether it's a match, whether it's everybody, uh, you don't want to get too wrapped up in your head, but at the same time, you want to take every shot serious. Uh, the, the minute you start letting rounds off, now you're building neural pathways that are bad habits that are negative. Yeah, they're negative and yeah. we don't want to do that. So if you're at a practice session and you're not able to, uh, to really focus, uh, take a break. And if you find you can't focus, well, go home. Yep. I've even done it in a match. I mean, I'm, uh, for whatever reason, maybe I had some sort of malfunction or something, or I, I'll still try to get my mind in it, but I've, I've had times where I've stopped shooting, um, because I couldn't focus mm-hmm. and I looked at it. It's just a rifle match. And I sat there and I ROed for the rest of the day or hung out with my buddies. Cause that's what I'm there for a lot of times. But, uh, you know, you want to be able to refocus. You don't ever yeah. want to have to, you know, stop shooting a match, but remember, if you if you're not taking it seriously, if you're not engaged with those shots, everything you do from there is as uh, reinforcing a negative. There's always tomorrow. Yep. There you can go back to the range. Uh, you can go back and do another match. Yep. But don't start. Especially, I see the trigger slapping. I, we're all guilty of it. You get too I'm fast. Not guilty and we, of that. I don't do that shit. Right, okay. Well, there you go. Most of us are guilty of that. <laughs> And, uh, you know, next thing you know, you start doing that, you start rushing, you start doing that. And, and now you've developed that habit, uh, that neural pathway. And I, I, like he said, the clock, I like the clock. Yeah. The clock is, is, I, it tells me if I can finish the stage, it tells me how fast I need to move. Mm-hmm. Uh, it tells me a lot of things. And yeah. if you start looking at it that way and not, uh, oh God, the, the time's almost over. Right. You flip it around, you know, flip the narrative. And again, we'll, we'll talk about that another day. We'll take a whole podcast and talk about, uh, I want to do the separate ones. One is like preparing for a stage, uh, before uh, mentally pre- prepping, actually getting through the stage and then evaluating yourself and learning from the stage. We'll talk about right. that another day. And that's the thing too, you know, but whenever you go and, and you look, you know, you look at a range book, okay. You show up to rifles only, I hand you a range book. All right. And it says, okay, here's what's going to happen. You know, you're going to, you're going to shoot three shots from here four shots from here and three shots from here. By the time you go up and the clock starts, you should have gone through that stage about 50 oh, times yeah. in your head. I mean, yeah. you should have gone through, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. We did it. Uh, we, on the last uh, course we had, we were, you know, talking about the fundamentals and applying them and everything else. So there's one particular stage that we have out here uh, in a match that really draws on everything, economy of motion, weapons, handling, fundamentals of marksmanship, all of that. And we spent an entire training block on that. And I mean, we went from, you know, people timing out to, I mean, people over there, you know, saying, you know, how many of those were hits? And it says you have 15 seconds left. And that was a clean score. Yeah. You know, and it was just, they felt like that. And again, they were able to do it physically, you know, to physically right. practice it. Cause we timed everybody before. And then we just went through, you know, here's how you should approach this. You know, here's where your equipment should be. Here's where your fingers should be. Here's where your feet should be. I mean, again, if, you know, if it works for you and uh, man, it's just like, there was a hundred percent improvement across the board. And it was just those things. It was just the, the economy of motion, the, the proper weapons handling skills, you know, the weapons manipulation skills, you know, the movement was more efficient. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, you know, if it was a, a left shoulder shot, you had the rifle on the left shoulder as you approached. And these are, these are just little things you can think about going through it in your head because you can solve a lot of problems. You know, you, you always see that they do it in golf all the time. Oh, yeah. You know, that's one of those things. They'll, they'll watch these videos of these perfect swings, perfect swings, perfect swings 
And I mean, there's a whole, you know, there's a whole training regimen on that. Mm-hmm. Well, this is no different. You know, this is really no different, but at any rate, we'll talk, like you say, we'll talk about that. Yeah. We'll get into it again. What okay. else we got? Last one that we want to talk about cartridges that are easy to tune. <sighs> well, again, it depends. <laughs> I hate to do it, but that's what it is. Uh, First off, yeah, sure. You got your six BR and your variants, your six uh, BRAs, your six dashers, your six whatever GTs, yep. all of that crap. Uh, they're they're very easy. Uh, nobody has. I mean, you you take a six BR, you put thirty grains of Varget and a one hundred five or a one hundred nine Burger on top of it. It's gonna shoot. It's gonna shoot. Put yeah. it twenty thousands off the lands. It's gonna shoot. Yeah. So there's that. Then there's the other spectrum where people say finicky. I don't like that word. Because I I don't are right, loading. Uh, we'll do another whole thing. We'll get some guests on about it. But there's there's a it's a you have a case. You have mm-hmm. a primer. You have powder. You have a bullet. Right. That's pretty much that, all. That's good. all there is there, and you have a, a chamber and all. So there's there's not. I mean, don't me wrong. It's it's more complicated than that, but it kind of isn't. Right. Uh, if you're having issues, and it's not a mechanical issue, it's not your gun, it's not your chamber. Your bullet is stable. You're using good bullets, good powders, good. Because uh, the number one thing that I've told people to fix uh, finicky stuff is use good stuff. You know, right. go buy you some Lapua brass, buy you some burger bullets, buy you some good powder. Uh, most even, most bullets are good nowadays. It's not like, you know, 20 years ago when they were, eh, you know. Ask me how I know. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, so buy good stuff. That has fixed more problems for me. I've had people call me up uh, from the high and other stuff. Like, I just can't do it. The first thing I ask, what kind of uh, brass are you using? And it's it's junk. Yeah. yeah, I'm not gonna go into names of it, but it's it's not good. Right. Well, there's one problem. Right. Uh, what are bullets you using? It's junk. Yep. They use that, and they're like, "Oh my man, this thing's shooting great." So one, use good components. Two, again, if it's no mechanical thing, I I don't know what this person that sent the question is, uh, if they had some issues or not. But then I always say, look at your process, and most of the time, if it's not the components, it's the process of loading. Uh, we've come a long way since circa 1995. Uh, the, we've got really great chronographs. We have scales that measure down to a kernel. Uh, so we've really narrowed it down mm-hmm. and that you can really break each part of your process down. So if you're having stuff, if you're finding stuff, quote unquote finicky and it's good, it's a good rifle and it's good components. It's more than likely your process. I know some people aren't going to like that answer, but it kind of is what it is. Yeah. And you know, that's the thing too, the, you know, Dylan, uh, the Dylan, you know, 1050s mm-hmm. and 650s and everything else, you know, the, there's been, I, I've had friends who've actually uh, automated those and, mm-hmm. you know, made ammunition companies out of it. You know, I'm it, working it, on one right now. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it's automatic, everything. Well, I have, I have a manual Dylan 1050 and um, I'm looking at it right now. And man, for that thing, pull the handle and put a bullet on top. Dylan already pissed on the electric fence. You know what <laughs> I mean? They got it fixed. Um, that one, I have it set up for 762 right now. I mean, if I go over there and knock out, you know, 300 rounds, I can take it and put it in any 308 that I own. And it's going to shoot at least at very minimum half minute, yeah. you know, at the very, very minimum, sometimes even better than that. And there was, you know, interesting story on that. Um, there's a really good friend of mine from over in Corpus, uh, he shoots Ventrust and, um, you know, he would, you know, he would, you know, Ventrust techniques, you know, for reloading or, you know. And they're, they're pretty precise, you know, because the Ventress guys, you know, their job is to shoot little bitty tiny mm-hmm. groups. And 
you know, if you go to, you know, a national level match, your group size better be 0 0.0 than a number. Yeah. Because if it's point a number, it's like, thanks for coming. <laughs> so uh, if you'll notice those guys, they actually reload right there at the shooting bench mm -hmm. or in the back of their suburban right there. And they have these powder measures and they have no idea. None of them have any idea how much that powder weight is. They have no clue. Especially for the closer stuff. They don't. It's just close. It's yeah. just it's just a number. Yeah. It's a number. Say, what's your load on that? Ah, I'm seven and a half. Okay. Uh, so they go and they their buddy tries seven and a half. Well, how much how much does that weigh? Well, they don't know. <laughs> you know, they don't know. Um, the 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 weight of the amount of powder that you're putting in there. Um, again, if I'm wrong on this, somebody send me an email and tell me. But I know that if I go out and I'm shooting, you know, six millimeter, six five, three oh eight, three hundred wind mag, three three eight fifty cal, and I do it in the evening, or I get somebody else to do it and I watch them, I always see, I don't know, four feet of flame come out the end of the barrel, and I'm wondering, you know, in order for that flame to be there, that has to be powder. That there is to, some there. Yeah. There has to be powder there, and so I know that some of that powder is being burned outside the barrel um go back to the other side of the house uh where i'm i'm i've got a bunch of guys out here with uh you know 110s or mark 20s or something like that out the ejection port if you put your hand there you're going to get grains of powder that come out and so i wonder you know how important you know really that actually is and i'm not saying i'm not saying for those guys that are wanting to be just you know absolutely precise but i'm talking about for just practical shooting you know if i need to go out and hit you know regular size targets you know nothing crazy i'm not trying to hit a, a walnut at 800 yards i couldn't see a walnut at 800 yards but at any rate i'm just wondering about that because it seems like that there's got to be something with that powder burning outside of the barrel i don't know what it's doing for your velocity or what it's doing for your accuracy yeah i mean there is the theory of like hey it's better to have too much than not enough i guess is the thing so oh, i know that's yeah, true that's true yeah. so that's probably where some of it is now what i will say and again i'm gonna context 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 before people uh, skewer me online like they have before I'm not talking about bench rest and like he said, a little shooting a wall at 800 yards. I'm not talking about your F class where if you shoot uh, two nines at a thousand, your day's over. Mm -hmm. I'm not getting there. That's a, that's a different animal and I understand it. However, for what this podcast is mainly around your practical size targets and things field like rifle. that field rifle, yeah. uh, I'm going to challenge everyone to do this. Go do your load development. I don't care how you do it. Cause uh, everybody's got there. That's another thing. If everybody's load development method works, that, that's kind of an issue. If everything works, then nothing works, is my opinion. So uh, there's so many different ways that people do it, and everyone has, nobody says, man, this way sucks. Yeah. They, it works for them, yeah. right? So that's an issue there. That's a whole other conversation. But I challenge you. Go do your load development, your full load development. Mm -hmm. However you do it. Take your best load, what you decided on, and take your worst one and load up 50 or 100 of them and go to the range each day and shoot five or 10 of each. Record your groups. Record your chronograph data. Do it long-term. Do it for 50 rounds. Do it for 100. Do it for two, 300 rounds. Your best and your worst. And then come back and look at them. Compare the data. It's going to be a lot closer than, than you, you think, think it is. Yeah, it's a lot sure. closer. And the other thing is, if uh, here's another one. If I am using the same bullet, the same seating depth, I'm using the same, I'm, I'm using a, uh, I'm using a $600 primer sear. I'm uh, using a FX120 or Prometheus from a powder charge. I'm using a, a pressure gauge from my seat. I'm doing all that and I'm doing it consistent. 
there's not much that's going to change there. So if you use 30 grains of powder or 33 grains of powder, mm -hmm. as long as you're not pressuring out and you're consistent in doing that, it's going to give you consistent numbers. If you do things right in your process right, it's really hard to have an ES, an extreme spread, or an SD, whichever one you're looking at. But it, it's really hard to have an ES that's going to miss the size targets that we're doing. Right. Exactly. Go test it. Yeah. Um, go out there and run it across your chronograph, load up. I've done, uh, I've taken challenges from people. I've let people tell me, hey, you tell me what seating depth and uh, what uh, powder charge to load my XYZ rifle. And I've mm -hmm. done it and went out there and we've shot targets with them. I'm like, it's it's consistent because I loaded it consistent. Right. For sure. For sure. Well, I hope that, I hope that helps. Listen, uh, I know we're getting ready to close it out here, but there, the activity that we have had <laughs> on, rifles only accuracy podcast at riflesonly.com roap.com those emails that are coming in those are those are really helpful i mean the, the thing about it is we, we've got a million things that we can talk about you know for uh you know a million different things that we want to talk about but that's not why we're here we want to talk what you want to talk about and so uh keep it up keep it up keep bringing it dave thank you for coming up and it's really good to see you yeah uh we'll uh we'll try to get one in this week probably a remote podcast before you take off to colorado then we'll play it by ear i'll either have some guests on here or we'll have you guys remote again roap at riflesonly.com tell us who you want to hear on this podcast whether it's with me and jacob or just jacob or whoever we'll figure it out but tell us who you want to hear and please send us some questions feedback any any sponsors that we talk about uh Grind Ops Coffee, Eric Cortina, uh, the Texas Precision Matches up there, Voodoo, Leopold, Magpul. Buy their stuff, man. They're awesome. Very good. Very good. Hey, and if y'all don't want to hear either of us, y'all just want to hear somebody else, let us know that too. Hey, uh, we'll put them on. Yeah, I'll sit over in the, on the couch and drink a beer. All right, guys. Take care. Have a good one. Uh -huh.